1: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
0: Good morning, listeners. Um, You are listening to Green Left Radio. uh, And on the line, we have myself, Jacob,
2: and Zane. And Chloe.
0: Yeah. So we're all. Um, it's a we're recording this on a fine kind of Thursday morning. Um, just to prepare uh, and to be played on this Friday morning. Um, on Friday morning. Um, and I guess before I announce what we have coming up on our program, uh, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the land of the Kulin Nation. Like to pay our respect. Um, to elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Now, to give a bit of a, um, announcement of what we have lined up for our program, um, we're going to be talking to Rachel Evans, um, who is a member of Social Science and an activist who is involved in, um, the Black Lives Matter movement in, uh, Sydney and generally been a long-term campaigner against deaths in custody and Recently there was a rally that happened on Tuesday in Sydney. In fact, it's a bit of an alien thing right now in uh coming from Melbourne. Um, there are have actually been rallies organised in other parts of the country that are not Victoria, um, with social distancing in place, etc. So there was a rally that was heavily kind of repressed by the police. It was also declared unlawful by the High Court of New South Wales. So We're going to be having a bit of chat with, um, Rachel about some of the political issues there. And then followed by, um, by Rachel, we'll be interviewing, um, social science and moreland councillor Sue Bolton, uh, about the whole disaster of privatization and the whole aged care crisis as it has impacted, uh, on on people and in the midst of this whole COVID nineteen pandemic in Melbourne. Now, I guess I want to start a bit of a guess a discussion. Maybe to is there there is this article written in Green Left by Sue Ball, make, basically making the argument that when it's when it has come to this whole COVID nineteen pandemic, making an argument for why the government should have adopted an elimination strategy. Now, for people's kind of interview for info, essentially the government has, the federal government uh, in Australia has adopted a strategy of suppression. And, you know, to the best, uh, I'm not necessarily kind of an expert on this, but my understanding is a suppression strategy is attempt to suppress the COVID-19 pandemic as much as as possible in terms of um, the COVID-19 pandemic as it has hit um, Australia. And, you know, the strategy involves, you know, a lot of um, having systems in place that allow for contract tracing, which, you know, basically any case of COVID-19 is able to be followed up by a kind of team of of, um, contract tracers and um, health professionals. And then the second um, The second kind of element is that it involves a a level of lockdown, as in the stage kind of free lockdowns that we have um, that are currently in place in Melbourne right now. Now, the main issue, I guess, um, and the kind of argument um, that Sue Bull is kind of making, I guess, in, in the article is that the suppression strategy still relies on accepting a uh, a level of i guess community transmission uh in 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 a in a um in terms of um in terms of the country um and it's basically making the argument that you know if we had a if you have a well equipped suppression strategy we can suppress the covid-19 virus to significantly low low levels that uh, that contact, contract tracing and mass testing will be enough to take on any sort of case of COVID-19, even as, uh, states or governments ease up current, um, existing kind of restrictions. And the argument that I guess Sue Ball is arguing is that the government should have actually gone for an elimination strategy, which is akin to what New Ze- countries like New Zealand, um, Vietnam and, um, even China, to a certain extent, although China had had the issue that COVID-19 was so far spread out that um, in some ways that it, it's almost quite it's very difficult to eliminate. Basically, the argument was that Australia should have gone with an elimination strategy, i.e. completely eliminate it from the community uh, in terms of the uh, um completely eliminate uh, community transmission and basically the only cases of COVID-19 hypothetically in this scenario would be from international travel. But the argument is um, that Sue Ball raises is that essentially um Going for elimination strategy would have would have involved um, Australia going into a much stricter lockdown than what we have kind of implemented because essentially the lockdown that we have we have gone with a pretty hard lockdown but not necessarily a lockdown that completely shuts down a lot of non-essential industries and when you look at New Zealand New Zealand had a strategy of basically locking everything down for like four to six weeks, and that included schools, that included um, shopping centres, and the only things that were open were pharmacies and food shops. And essentially, New Zealand, from through that strategy, has actually managed to eliminate um, COVID-19 from the community at this um, rate. The only cases of COVID-19 have been traced um, to international travel. And so... But I think the argument is that, um, one of the big kind of arguments, and Scott Morrison has made it clear that the federal government is only opting for, uh, uh, a suppression strategy because the argument is that we, um, that, uh, going for a elimination strategy, which would involve a much stricter lockdown, um, than what has been implemented in Australia so far, would involve, uh, economic costs that is too high. And I think, Essentially the argument is um is it's it's a kind of I think an example I think of how capitalism is prioritizes, I guess, the interests of profit and the economy over public health, when it's quite clear that, you know, all the evidence suggests that elimination strategy would have been the best kind of pathway to go forward. The government has essentially adopted for a more limited kind of strategy, I guess, of suppression. And so, yeah, I guess I think that's just, I, I, you can read a bit more on some of the arguments, um, in Sue Ball's article up on Green Left. But yeah, that's just a sort of.
2: I think the economic argument is really flawed as well, because after the first sort of wave of lockdowns in Australia back in sort of March, April, May sort of time, um, we we kind of got pretty close, <clears throat> pretty close to elimination anyway. It would not have taken that much to keep things locked down a little bit longer, do more testing, have a more rigorous uh, quarantine um, set up instead of having, as the article points out, low-paid, completely untrained people from these dodgy security companies being sent there so we were that close to elimination anyway and instead now there's this second wave and all the associated lockdowns that come with that and that's really expensive so this economic argument that oh we can't afford to pursue elimination i think is not that compelling because the difference between elimination and suppression is you know a few weeks of extra lockdown in order to avoid a whole nother wave and, you know, weeks or months of further lockdown. Um, So yeah, I'd, I'd just, I'd question that economic rationale. And if Vietnam, a country of probably, what, four times the population of Australia in a much more dense area, with much less resources than Australia, right next door to China, if Vietnam can do elimination, than australia can and i would also note that there was a another COVID outbreak in vietnam just recently and it was caused by corrupt vietnamese officials smuggling chinese tourists in uh wealthy chinese how wealthy are we talking about probably relatively wealthy uh but anyway yeah, corrupt officials smuggling people in and that's led to another outbreak. Uh but and until very recently the uh yeah, elimination had actually been successful in Vietnam. So I think it's certainly something that's possible to aim for here and we should.
1: Yeah, um Zane, you mentioned Vietnam and um, you know, here in Victoria the, the, we've adopted this punitive approach, you know, finding finding people for not wearing masks. Um, you know, making it mandatory to wear masks, which which I do believe is necessary. Uh, but you know, technically, we should be provided with masks, at least disposable ones, um, if if they're going to make it compulsory and and then have police on the streets finding people. But in Vietnam, I heard that the police there, if they do see anybody without masks, they're actually just you know, providing them on the spot with one which is a, a good idea they should be doing that here in Victoria and and I think we did correct me if I'm wrong but I think we did have in in Melbourne or maybe even the whole of Victoria there were maybe one or two days where we had zero community transmission and then I think you know it was due to the mishandling of the hotel quarantines um that that it just there was a resurgence even though even though the right-wing media are desperately trying to link um, the resurgence of the second wave of, of coronavirus to those Black, Life, Black Lives Matter protests, which is absolutely ridiculous, um, there's so much evidence to the contrary that that's not the case at all. But yeah, I've just there's so much um, lies spreading throughout the media that 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 is the reason. It's it's absolutely not the reason. Yeah.
0: And yeah, we might, um, we'll resolve type this um, discussion soon. Um, but I guess I just want to note that in terms of this whole question around elimination, I will acknowledge that in the case of Australia, the states of WA, Tasmania, Queensland and South Australia did essentially, achieve, oh, and also Australian Capital Territory as well. Can't forget about. ACT, did manage to achieve, with suppression, elimination of of COVID-19 from the community. Um, but it has been the case that Melbourne, like in the case of Melbourne and even in the case of New South Wales, they haven't necessarily been able to completely eliminate community transmission. And there's a clear pressure against the idea of going further towards actually just eliminate it full stop because Scott Morrison keeps insisting that you know suppression is just the right way we don't want to shut down the economy um just to just to get rid of the virus completely we have to accept that there's a certain level of covid-19 in the um in the envi- um in the environment or in in the community um i think that is ridiculous and i think you know it has i think it has to be called out and opposed um, because I think, you know, we're clearly in the uh, a very good position, as Zane argued, if we just went with an extra two weeks of lockdown um, and we uh, and we had a clear t- strategy of just eliminating it full stop from the community, we would have been able to achieve it because clearly if a number of ast- um, states within Australia were able to achieve elimination with the current suppression methods um, in place, um, then it's quite clear to me that I think Australia would have been on track to eliminating entirely from the country and basically the only cases of COVID-19 uh, would have been um, from um, international travel. Now, anyway, I might just, um, because we have our first guest um, on the line now, um, I'll just um, quickly, um, I think we'll just play a quick announcement um, and then we'll move on to, I guess, the next part of the program.
3: Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone.
0: For listeners' information, the following interview that will be conducted with um, Rachel Evans um, will have discussions of um, Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, please listen with caution as it may cause um, distress. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners um, should also listen with caution as this um, as interview will discuss... Um, Cases of deaths in custody and all care has been taken to ensure um, that it is depicted sensitively. Um, with... All right. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, we we're just having a bit of a discussion around the COVID-19 pandemic on this whole question around elimination versus suppression, drawing on an article written by Sue Ball in Green Left titled COVID-19 why we need to aim for elimination. For the next part of our program, um, we have Rachel Evans on the line. Now, Rachel Evans is a long-term campaigner uh, against black deaths in custody um, and has been part of um, the organising and the building of the Black Lives Matter rallies in Sydney. Um, And just recently there was an attempt to have a big Black Lives Matter protest in Sydney, um, which was unfortunately heavily repressed, um, I guess, by the um, by the New South Wales police. Um so yeah, Rachel, can you give us a tell us a bit about a bit of background on sort of what sort of happened there um and you know, the level kind of of, of police repression of this protest.
3: Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, Green Left Radio, and hi everyone, I'm speaking in the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This land was never ceded and it's the home of Pumaway, uh, who was really the first uh, incredible significant resistor to colonisation and the first wave of the brutal English troops that came in to this beautiful area in Sydney um, in the, as they entered into the harbour. So, and Pumwai was really known for uniting the tribes against the settler colonial forces. So we always remember his spirit when we are campaigning around First Nations rights. And so, yeah, we had a pretty amazing rally on Tuesday. And actually, Sydney has been incredible. Uh, the Sydney population has come out really solidly around Black Lives Matter and to stop deaths in custody. So really, it The June 6th massive rally was about 50,000 here in Sydney and there was 200,000 across the country. But Sydney was really significant because the New South Wales Police, state government, took us to the Supreme Court to try and stop it, declare it illegal. Um, And about 30,000 people showed up as the protest was illegal and we put an appeal in halfway through the rally. It got declared that we won the appeal on June the 6th, and then another 20,000 people showed up um, as the rally became uh, illegal. And also the government was really intent on trying to stop people from getting to that rally. They shut down the inner city, main inner city train station. So people had to walk, get out in the outlying train stations and walk. So that rally was really significant. And that was on the back, of course, of George Floyd's uh, murder and the rise of the Black Lives Movement in the US. And it had parallels, of course, because Latona Dungay, who is David Dungay's mother, was at the Supreme Court on June the 5th and June the 6th telling people to come out and protest because, like George Floyd, her son, David, was murdered in Long Bay Jail, which is the nearest jail to Sydney CBD near the Aboriginal-dominated area of La Perouse. Um, And he was murdered at the end of 2015 saying, I can't breathe as five guards pinned him down and suffocated him. So it was very powerful to have Latona say, come out, come out, regardless of what the government says. But it also really showed to the populace who are watching acutely that the Supreme Court and the courts are not in our favour, are not in First Nations favour and aren't with the people. So, then um, there's, there was the tane Chatfield inquiry that happened in the last two weeks. And Tane was a, um, an Aboriginal man from up north, a uh, Gumarai, Gumbangi and Wagga Wagga man and a father of one. And he was found hanging in his cell in Tamworth prison on September 2017. And so his inquiry was at Lidcombe in the last two weeks. And so there's been a lot of discussion about the racist prison system Um, He was found hanging from his cell. There there should have been no hanging points in his cell. He had seizures. Uh, The hospital attempted to tell the prison of the seizures and the hospital, the prison nurse did not not acknowledge the email about the seizure and so stuck Tana in a cell on his own, um, contravening a number of recommendations of correctional service policy and also the in custody commission of 1991. So that's all been happening. And then, bang, we have another rally. The David Dungay family did attempt to give 100,000 petition uh, signatures um, of their petition to New South Wales Parliament unhindered. The Supreme Court, New South Wales Police, uh, state government tried to stop that rally. um, And we had about four days of the Supreme Court deliberations and hearings, appeals, and they ruled against us. We did it anyway and uh, under significant pressure arguing that we were going to be COVID contagious uh, carriers because of our rally. Um, and and so we went ahead anyway, uh, dedication and commitment and strength of the family leading us. And they fined five, five activists um, and they did threaten us with six months jail and $11,000 fine. But the activists that they find will find a thousand dollars only. We're gonna contest that and we're gonna keep fighting. And the interesting thing was in the morning that's what happens in the domain, a massive park. They um they made an announcement that there was over twenty people in this massive three kilometre radius park, so we were contravening COVID. They fined five people and then in the afternoon the Dungay family went into Parliament for a press conference and um and handed over the 100,000-strong petition. So, again, with media flocking and we had media um, all throughout the day and we've had media all throughout the week. So the government and the police are under significant fire and significant strain because of this powerful rising movement.
2: I had a question. Um, It seems like... um... different left um, forces sort of really working together and different community organisations working together on this campaign. There seems to be a bit of um, collaboration um, uh, happening.
3: Yeah, thanks, Zane. That's a good question. There is real unity um, around the campaign supporting the families um, and also defending the space, the democratic space, which is so important for us to defend the streets and our ability to protest on the streets in new south wales we've got to fill in this form one and that that doesn't really happen across the other states as much i've heard the northern territory have introduced it but it's you've got to hand it in seven days before the event and nominally the police argue it's so that they can shut the correct roads down but really it's um allows the new south wales police to take protesters to court and Um, and deem it illegal for various ridiculous technical reasons. But, uh, so they've done it against Palestinian rallies. They've done it against the TJ Hickey rally for, um, a number of, in a number of years where we rally every 14th of February. Um, that's when he was murdered. So, so yeah, they, they use it against the protest movement. So yeah, it's the Maritime Union of Australia. Big shout out to them, the Dungay family. Jumbana unit, big shout out to them. Uh, Justice Action, big shout out to them. Um, and then a whole bunch of civil liberties-minded lawyers and civil libertarians are are coming behind. And there's also a bunch of student groups, Azen, a big shout out to them. The socialist organisations, of course, um, are supporting and helping lead the campaign and um which is really very much being led by the families and a big shout out to Paul Francis and Latona Dungay who have done incredible media work and been incredible in the face of such an assault by the Murdoch press um, and slander by the Murdoch press. And, look, it is polarising and there is a whole bunch of comments on Facebook that you shouldn't spend too much time reading um, uh, condemning us the protest organizers and condemning the family and also slandering David Dungay. But now really what's happening is people are learning about how racist the so-called justice system is, the racial profiling that happens out of 50,000 prisoners across the country. A third have not been charged. A third are on remand. Um, but that's, uh, you know, between 15,000 and 30,000 are on remand and Tana Chatfield had not been charged. He was on remand for two whole years um, and he was just getting into his court case when, when he was so brutalised by the system um, he hung himself in his cell. So, or at least that's certainly the evidence that we have to date. The other thing about that inquiry was we had evidence that um, a- appeared on the Friday which we're only finding out about now, which um, would, yeah, I mean, it, the, the coronial inquests are another part of the problem. So, yeah, there's a lot of learning happening about the racist system um, that tries to suppress First Nations people as a result of this
0: amazing campaign. Um, what can you tell us, Rachel, um... Because from my understanding, uh, a number of the protesters and one of the organisers, Paddy Gibson, was charged by the police um, and have been the subject of um, yeah, basically being targeted essentially by the police for organising these protests. What is the charges that they're trying to charge protesters with in this instance? And what are what is sort of their, the legal basis by which these protests have been considered unlawful I mean obviously there's this whole issue around public health, which I think the police are leaning strongly on but what are sort of the other kind of what are some of the elements kind of at play here
4: mm,
3: that's a good question look also big shout out to patty Gibson um and people should pop on Facebook or um send him a message of solidarity because he's also been getting like Paul Francis and Latona, been getting a whole bunch of flack um, and played a really important role um, in the Supreme Court and been a real indefeatable campaigner for many years around First Nations rights. So big shout out. And, look, they did threaten us with six months jail under the Public Health Act, Um, but it's the COVID Emergency Act that they're using and it's, you know, a $1,000 fines for allegedly contravening um, the act. And look, in New South Wales, in Sydney, we've been holding refugee rallies and we've been holding uh, Stop CSG rallies. Extinction Rebellion have been holding small actions. Um, The Rent Campaign have been holding small actions, Um, but it's the Black Lives Matter campaign that's mobilised the most amount of people. Um, And it's just, you know, people can see it once you start, you know, scratching the surface of the government's arguments, they don't hold up. I mean, if they really cared about COVID transmission, then they would attempt an elimination strategy, which is they would lock everything down, um, including construction sites and shopping centres and beaches and markets. Um, They would lock everything down because it's the Black Lives Matter rallies that are out in the open. It's been proven that there's been no contagious um uh, there's been no contagion through these rallies by a number of public health authorities, and yet the government still puts this argument that we're going to be carriers and um, we're going to spread it and so on. But if they were really serious, they'd shut down the schools. And you look at we've got a school outside the resistance office. Um, and look, you know, I'm not going to I'm not pointing them out for any particular reason, but there's no masks. Students aren't wearing masks. Teachers haven't been Um, um, uh, recommended to wear masks Uh, and yet you look at the Black Lives Matter rallies and there's masks everywhere, hand sanitising, so on and so forth. So, look, the thing is that the legal system and the courts, like the prison system and like the police force, are organised against First Nations people and working class um, people and they operate for the rich, not us. And you can see that they just pull out any law, um, that they want and, and trying to intimidate people away from the streets. And the thing about this movement is that it is challenging. It is challenging the system because if we give and if we win and when we win land rights for First Nations people, that goes against the control of agribusiness and mining companies and iron ore holds up this country's capitalist elite uh, and they want to export as much coal, iron ore and gas to the world as they can get away with. So... You know, First Nations rights are critical for, um, for an ecological, sustainable Australia, formerly known as hopefully Australia. Um, and so this movement is cha- very, very challenging and they want to they intimidate everyone away
0: from it. Okay. Um, Rachel, do you have, I guess, um, any sort of final comments, I guess, you'd like to make?
3: Yeah, I think that um, we should all be watching out for the next inquiries and asking the families at, of those inquiries how we can help and how we can assist. Um, War, I know, in Melbourne and War in Brisbane have been putting out great statements saying support the Sydney Black Lives Matter rally and there is obviously the socialist left and um, the progressive movement as a whole is looking at Sydney's actions and, um, and the inquiries. But, yeah, if there's attempts it, well, there will be um, if there's ability for organisations in the non-COVID states to organise solidarity actions, that would be great. There's two inquiries coming up. Nathan Reynolds in New South Wales, who died um, from medical neglect in prison after having an asthma attack. They didn't bother turning up to his cell. Um, another absolute um, disgusting act by the prison system. And then Wayne Feller-Morrison in South Australia so that coronial inquest of Wayne Fell Morrison is being rescheduled, um, and we'll find out when the date was. It was supposed to be next week. Um, but there's, you know, I mean, there was 48 guards involved in that murder of, um, that young man, also a father of one. Um, and so the family, uh, organizing, um, around the new date. So just watch that space. And, um, and really, I think we can, we can win a cop in jail, uh, the campaign's demanding, uh, jail killer cops and jail killer screws. We can win that. And there's another court case coming up we should watch out for, which is the, a court case in the Northern Territory, the murder of, um, Walker in Yamundamu, uh, Kamunji Walker. And that cop was and has been charged with murder. And we're looking um, at that court case, which is upcoming it's been rescheduled i think twice now um, but but if and when we get that that's a measure of the campaign success and with enough support and people mobilizing around it we we will win that
0: Hi. um thank you thank you very much um, um Rachel um so thank you yeah, so, we,
2: um
0: we'll just um Just for listeners' information, um, we're just interviewing um, Rachel Evans, an activist involved in New South Wales, about the whole ongoing movement against Black Deaths in Custody and Black Lives Matter. Um, And I'll just play, I guess, um, a quick announcement, um, and then we might move on, I guess, to the next um, part of the program.
1: Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of
0: strength we've got here today Okay. All right, um, listeners, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, um, and on the line we have Sue Bolton, um, who has always been, is usually a regular guest um, on our program, and um, Sue Bolton is a social science councillor um, um, who is actually currently running for re-election as part of um, the Sue Bolton Morland team, which is a team of social science and community independence running for the Morland council this year for the coming, um, council elections in October. Um, but we have her on the line mainly to have a bit of a discussion about the issues around privatization, uh, and the COVID-19 pandemic as it has hit, um, Melbourne and essentially um more specifically focusing on the whole issue of aged care because essentially there has been a whole crisis um related to aged care um in uh, as a result of the covid-19 pandemic as it has kind of hit um melbourne and maybe i guess we can sort of start off this discussion um Sue, by i guess or what um could you give a guess a bit of a, of an overview i guess you know, how disastrous this sort um the effects of privatization has been in terms of how it has impacted on the aged care centre and and the casualisation of work?
4: Well, to start off with, the aged care sector was deregulated uh quite a number of years ago and uh, people might not realise it, but the change of terminology from nursing home to aged care homes uh, or aged care centres was when deregulation happened. And so now there are very few government-run aged care centres. Um, mostly they're private, either private for-profit or um, or they might be uh, not-for-profit. But these days, with so much... Um, so many formerly uh, government services having been shoved off into private or not-for-profit companies, Um, a lot of not-for-profit organisations operate just like companies operating for a profit. And you would say the aged care sector was a sitting duck. And the main reason I say that um, is that most of them have no registered nurses or only one registered nurse connected with the enterprise or maybe they might have a couple of registered nurses but they they don't have a registered nurse on every shift available every shift and then that single or you know either small number or single registered nurse when they're there they're really only able to um, deal with dishing out the me- medication, not really um, properly um, really investigating the welfare of all of the elderly people within within the nursing home and so a lot of the nursing homes do run with um, Totally, or very high levels of casualized staff, agency staff, and that's really what happens with nursing in general now, anyway, and many sectors of the economy of the workforce. And so I think the the whole cost cutting within the aged care sector, where um, there's so few or very or, or you know, not many, um, registered nurses is a key aspect. But there's also another aspect of privatisation, and that is that um, a lot of aged care workers who do their training not with public TAFEs, but with um, registered training organisations, you know, um, some of them are dodgy private training organisations, um, only get access to um, online training. And they don't get, um, don't do practical work, um, at, whereas with public TAFEs, if you do your course with a public TAFE, you do prac work in the workplace. And so you learn and, and start to understand um, how things should work. So a lot of those workers have not been trained in infection control in any genuine way. So that's another element where we've got two elements of privatisation uh, coming together.
0: Yeah, and I guess one of the things that kind of Daniel Andrews kind of, um, said and um, and it's been quite interesting has, there appears to be a bit of sort of spin coming from the government with the Scott Morrison government basically trying, uh, with Scott Morrison, not, not the government per se, um, Scott Morrison arguing that, you know, the, when it comes to the old age care crisis uh the government is doing everything that it can to do and that the so called private operators have been doing everything uh they can to you know deal with the pandemic whereas daniel andrews has actually given off you know a different sort of set of messaging which uh, where he actually kind of points out um that the private sort of operators have um uh, private aged care centres have been terrible uh, and it's and most of the cases have been linked to private aged care centres. So wh- what is your sort of comment, I guess, on this sort of disconnect between what Scott Morrison is saying in terms of the government spin that he's putting and what Daniel Andrews is saying about this whole crisis?
4: Well, I think that's partly because the federal government is responsible for aged care. They're responsible for investigating complaints about aged care. They're um, responsible. They set up the whole framework for aged care. They're the ones who deregulated the aged care system and, um, in reality, caused this crisis um, that we're seeing in aged care today. Um, so they are responsible, but I think this is where they're is a certain politicking. They don't want to be associated with this aged care crisis, so they're passing the buck to the state governments, like previously in New South Wales, uh, when the Newmarch New and the um, Dorothy Henderson Lodge disasters happened with um, COVID getting into aged care there, and that was a disaster for the New South Wales government. Uh, but there probably is some link. Uh, some connection that the health authorities in the states also have with aged care. I'm not sure the extent of that link um, because obviously the state governments are managing the COVID-19 crisis within the states and, and setting the regulations and so forth. But the federal government is responsible for this totally deregulated system of aged care and the standards and really The federal government is uh, is also culpable for the disaster in aged care in Victoria. In Victoria, of the 700 or so aged care homes, I think 178 are um, are from the Victorian government, and I believe there are only five cases of COVID in this uh, the government run aged care homes, whereas the rest, the bulk of you know, 800 or so infections uh, in the private and not-for-profit uh, aged care homes, not in the government homes. And that's because there are more um, nurses employed in the government-run aged care homes.
0: Yeah, and I guess the other thing is um, I want to hear a bit of sort of comments, I guess, on the whole issues around casualisation of work in general, going beyond sort of aged care and this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, because there was a recent comment by um, Daniel Andrews um, where a lot of the, even though the cases at this point for COVID-19 do appear to be dying off a bit, which is good as of Wednesday. Unfortunately, this show is being recorded on a, Thursday morning, so we don't have the case numbers for Thursday. And by the time the show will go to air, uh, the case numbers might be different. Uh, but there's obviously, there's still ongoing issue around casualization of work. And, uh, the Daniel Andrews government has implemented a number of measures, uh, such as, um, giving, um, giving people who test, uh, um, who get tested for COVID-19 access to a $250 payment if they test positive for COVID-19. They get a thousand five hundred off payment. But then I'll sort of, there's a stark comment by Daniel Andrews where he kind of said, if you are sick, uh, you should not go to work. Um, and I guess what is yes, your response on the sort of inadequacies of the Andrews government and this whole issue of, um, casualization of work and, and the COVID-19 pandemic?
4: Well, I'd say this is. Both Andrew's government, but also the federal government, because basically I think the federal government, which runs industrial relations in this country and prevents unions having clauses in agreements to convert, um, casual work to full-time work, um, for workers who want to be, uh, do, you know, want permanent jobs and, and full-time work. And so it's basically we have a scourge of casualization through the whole Australian workforce where we've lost the right to a permanent job. And this goes in sector after sector, construction, security guards, nursing, teaching. Like, it, this has become the run of the mill, um, way in which workers work in this country, not to mention gig economy workers where you're told you're, you're your own employer. Um, you know, you know, all the Uber Eats dr- workers and, um, Delivery, you know, de- um, delivery riders and and so forth. And basically, workers have the right to permanent work. And so, the government, the federal government, needs to change the laws to force bosses to provide workers with full time, ongoing work. Um, a lot of the casual workers all over the country are um, they're working at the same workplace. You know, year after year, some, some might have been casual workers for 10 plus years, but they're not eligible for long service leave. They're not eligible for holiday, uh, holiday leave. Um, they're not eligible for any kind of rights. And so I think it's, um, not just a state government issue. It's a, it's a federal government issue as well as a state government issue. Um, but, then obviously there is the need for these payments. Now, the Victorian government has given some payments and and now um, they have agreed to give workers, I believe it is $300 a day, from the day they get tested to the day that they receive their results. Because I think the um, numbers of people getting tested now, the um, number of days um, between when you get tested and when you get the results is... um, you know is more days now um and so um some workers were going to work because um if they didn't feel ter- very well because they weren't eligible for any pay from the government so the victorian government has given as the crisis has escalated they have given you know some pay to workers um, from the state government but it's sort of um it, this is all happening as the crisis escalates in the same way that the government was forced to introduce jobs, job keeper and increased job seeker at the beginning of the crisis. You know, Blind Freddie could tell that workers would be going to work sick um, if they weren't given increased job seeker. Like it's. Um, the whole thing is really, I think, a crisis of capitalism. And this casualisation is a worldwide policy. It's not just an Australian policy. The capitalist class across the world forces has forced workers onto um, short-term contracts and, and various forms of casualisation all over the world in, in their cost-cutting. And and then we've also had the situation where employers are refusing to provide workers with COVID safe workforces, um, PPE. The other impact of casualization is that it's impossible to maintain an infection-free system. And we heard from um, a nurse who uh, had worked in hotel quarantine where the issues in hotel quarantine weren't just the security guards, but the nursing as well, because the nurses were all casual workers. You didn't have permanency amongst either the nurses or the security guards. And so people are constantly telling new workers on the job, you know, where you put the contaminated material, where you put the uncontaminated material, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But the systems keeps breaking down because it's all verbal communication, new group of workers, a new group of workers every day. And so it's very difficult to maintain any um proper infection control system, even with the best will in the world, even with nurses who've got more training than security guards. So it's um that that casualization makes makes things really difficult and, and including in aged care as we've seen
2: and I think it's sir I'll just jump in there that's there's a real link between the whole, the whole purpose of contractualization and casualization is to stop those workers having those uh deeper links with each other because that's the sort of situation in which you have a unionized workforce so the whole point of this is to stop workers being able to have a deeper ongoing understanding, collective understanding of their workplace and the ins and outs of it and developing that close teamwork because that's a situation under which people might unionise, heaven forbid.
4: That's right. So it's, um, you know, you create that solidarity and potential unionisation or deeper levels of unionisation and it's cost-cutting as well and there is an international race to push workers down to the lowest um, lowest wages possible, and it happens within countries and between countries as well. That's, um, you know, quite frequently, um, you know, uh, there'll be mass sackings of workers who do have permanent jobs and they'll be replaced by casual or contracted you know, there are all sorts of different labour hire contracts, um, and, and that's, that's the situation you get. And so then when you have a situation of a virus like this, then, um, then that makes it harder. And then also in top of that, if you have a precarious situation where, um, where workers are not eligible for any kind of assistance, if they're not um, like job seeker or job keeper, if they don't go to work, then um, that also magnifies the problem. And I actually haven't properly checked to see if workers who are not eligible for a healthcare card are eligible for those, for some of these payments or, or, or workers who are not um Go on temporary migrant visas eligible for some of the payments through the Victorian government. They may be because the crisis is so strong here, but we know that one of the reasons why some people might not have been going to work because they were, when they were really ill, but when they might have just had a scratchy throat or just felt slight, very, ever so slightly off colour. Um, and you know, if you, a worker on a temporary visa, you asylum seekers, some categories of New Zealanders, international students, backpackers who got stuck in Australia during the lockdown and so needed work. Um, you know, like various people, um, yeah, not, who are not eligible for any kind of assistance from the government. Yeah, you have to go to work. Otherwise you will end up on the streets. And we've seen that as workers who've lost their, um, who've lost their jobs um, or, or had the shifts reduced because of COVID have been forced, you know, like international students been forced to move in with other international students in a very overcrowded situation because they've also lost their accommodation. Then of course, once one person gets COVID, it's going to run through the whole house because it's a totally overcrowded house. You can't isolate in an uh, overcrowded house.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I guess, um, do you have, I guess, any, uh, we might conclude this interview now. Um, Do you have any final comments you'd like to make, Sue?
4: Well, I think what we do need to see is the aged care system needs to become a public system again so that there's accountability and there needs to be a nurse-patient ratio um, that the nurses' union has been calling for for a long time um, we need these um, homes to be staffed with permanent staff, um, whether they're, you know, permanent full-time workers, permanent part-time workers, um, and we need proper training for aged care staff, not these um, dodgy brothers private training organisations that just run people through an online course, but, you know, proper training um, like there used to be through the public TAFE system. Um, and, yeah, and also there needs to be multilingual staff, which there probably were at St. Basil's, um, which is one of the worst affected aged care homes in um, in Melbourne. But the replacement staff and the privately owned medical company, Aspen International, none of them spoke Greek. They couldn't communicate with any of the residents, and most of the residents were Greek speakers. And elderly people even if they have learnt English well during their lifetime in Australia, tend to revert, especially if people have got dementia, tend to revert to their mother tongue, um, and, and lose the second language. I mean, that's quite a frequent thing. And so we ha- there, all of these sorts of disasters which happen when you don't have, you know, a really full time, permanent, uh, workforce. So and and we really need the federal government to basically change industrial relations laws to um to encourage force employers to have a permanently employed staff so that casual casual workers are only there to um cover you know spikes in work um and, and that kind of thing. That was the original intention of casual work was that it would only be there to cover um, when there was a sudden surge in work um, before work went back to its um, normal level. Whereas now we have, you know, lots of businesses, um, huge numbers of businesses that employ people casually regardless of whether it's um, standard level of work or spikes of work.
0: 3CR remains closed to all broadcasters and guests until further notice.
3: The good news is that so many of our programs are producing new shows each week from home. From Lost in Science to Living Free. Done by Law to Defence of Government Schools.
1: Concrete Gang to Chronically Chilled.
4: Mafalda to Music Matters.
1: We're here with compelling content and rousing radio.
4: Listen live or listen later. Tune in, stay
1: safe and keep listening. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay.
0: There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid.
1: Music.
0: Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Oh, it makes me happy. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out Music Sans Frontier great voices music matters
2: through
1: the hip sister the hop show the heavy
2: session
0: the planet takes radio show
1: satellite skies shindig
0: sweet dreams
1: tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming
0: live at 3cr.org.au let our music make you happy So you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Um, I don't know what time it is when you'll be um, hearing this, um, but hopefully it is a fine morning. Now, I'm going to pass it on to Zane um, because we might um, have a bit of a discussion about some of the things um, in culture. In fact, Green Left actually has... um, a special sort of section for cultural analysis of um, fiction, literature, um, called Cultural Descent. So maybe we can sort of consider this part of the program, the Cultural Descent uh, section of the program. Maybe I'll start off with um, Zane.
2: (laughs) Yes. So everyone's stuck at home here in uh, Melbourne because of lockdown and people are watching Netflix and they've kind of... They've watched all the good stuff and now you're starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel of your online streaming platforms and you might end up watching a whole bunch of rubbish and trash. And I know I certainly have, Uh, but there's also some good stuff out there and just last night I discovered a film from way back in 2007 uh, starring TV's Hilary Swank. And it's called Freedom Writers, and I could not recommend this highly enough it's based on a true story it's set in New york and this young woman starts as an English teacher at a rough high school. There is gang violence there's it's It's mainly people of color there's like one white kid in the class, and then there's African-American kids and people of Cambodian background and Latino kids. And it's a rough school. The kids are very disengaged from the learning system. Some of the other teachers are frankly quite racist and they're just like, oh yeah, those kids don't want to learn. Don't worry about them. But this teacher is very determined and slowly is able to, um, I don't know, like gain the trust of the students and, um, yeah, they, they go on a, a, a journey of, oh, it's not just about learning, but it's about um, finding common cause uh, as a school group. Um, but yeah, it's very touching film. It's based on a true story. There is a, a book called The Freedom Writers, which is a product of that school group's classwork. And yeah, I come from a family, my dad's retired now, but he was a TAFE teacher, my mum's a high school art teacher, I was very lucky to have a really good English teacher, um, Madeline uh, Marilyn Gledhill, um, who had me all the way from year 7 through to year 12, and in our final year we did retreat from the global and we were learning about um we were reading noam chomsky and john pilger in class and um the shipping news and yeah i don't know this film really does justice to the really important role that teachers can play in the community and i mean not every teacher is as committed to their job as every other teacher but some teachers are very they go the extra mile and they put a lot of work into their under-resourced job and that's really beneficial to their students. So yeah, shout outs to all the teachers out there. You do really important work and much respect.
1: Also, I'll just add that Freedom Riders is, I don't know if Zane mentioned, it's based on a true story um, of a real teacher named Aaron Gruwolf. So you can read about her. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I was watching it and I suspected it might have been a true story. And then, yeah, it gets to the end and it just tells you, yeah, one of those movies where it tells you a bit about the the true story behind it at the end. But yeah, it, it's great. Really, can't um, I recommend think I just, it. Was
1: that a spoiler? <laughs> spoiler alert. <roulette.
2: laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it's it's a great film. Whether mm. you know whether or not you know it's a true story from the beginning or not, it's yeah, it's brilliant. Freedom riders watch it netflix
0: well actually maybe i'll use this opportunity to recommend i think two sort of things that are available on some of the streaming services that people who are probably listening to this have um have available on um in terms of the streaming services um that they are uh, in terms of yeah in terms of being i think politically significant and quite uh, and good Pieces of literature to sort of, um, watch. Um, the first thing I'd like to recommend is, uh, a film that is available on Netflix right now, which came out recently, um, I think in 2017, um, called First Reformed. Um, it's directed by Paul Snyder, um, who is, um, who was the, um, the writer of many people probably know, uh, the, the classic film by Martin Scorsese, Taxi Driver, um, which I still think is actually probably one of the more politically kind of relevant, uh, sort of films today, um, and one of the more politically sophisticated films I've ever seen, probably what, classed as a masterpiece and probably one of my favourite films. Um, but first reformed, um, to not, without giving out away too much, um, it centres on a priest, uh, in, in America who has to give counselling to a young man who who's basically entered into a period of despair. And the reason why he's entered into a period of despair is because he is an environmental activist uh, who has sort of realised how Basically screwed up the world is in terms of the climate and how basically all these fossil fuel companies and corporations are basically polluting the planet and he feels absolutely powerless to kind of stop it. So that is, um, essentially the main, the main plot without necessarily spoiling much. The film, um, I think in some ways has a very similar plot and Sim- very similar storytelling to Taxi Driver. In fact, it uses um a similar kind of voiceover narration sort of in terms of how it tells its story. Um And also I think in some ways it's politically relevant and quite contemporary the same way Taxi Driver was to the whole 1970s Um in terms of how Taxi Driver kind of actually in some way, oh, actually Taxi Driver came out in oh. In the 1980s or 19, I forgot, but, but basically I think taxi driver kind of reflected sort of the state of sort of capitalism and politics um, for its time and how the glorification of kind of violence, especially in Hollywood, uh, whereas first reformed, I think is in some ways responding to the kind of contemporary sort of, um, climate crisis, um, and how, you know, the, the rich and the powerful are complicit in the destruction of our, of our climate. So I think it is quite a politically relevant film, uh, to watch. And, um, I definitely highly recommend it, especially since I haven't seen it got, it, it doesn't seem to be that, um, highly acclaimed in terms of it hasn't been that type of film that everyone sort of recommends. So yeah, I definitely recommend that, um, people watch First Reformed and it's, um, currently available on Netflix. Um, the second, um, bit of, fiction um the second thing i'd like to recommend is um this has been quite a popular television series um it is available on stan um and it's based on quite a basically a very popular novel um by Sally Rod- uh, Rooney who's an irish author um called normal people um now one of the interesting things normal people is You know, based on the synopsis, it is a fairly kind of standard sort of romantic drama, um, that centres on the relationship between, um, two, uh, a man and a a woman in, and it's set in, um, Ireland. But I thought what was particularly fascinating about the series, um, is it essentially, it is an example, I think, of a, of a romantic drama that actually, in some sense, acknowledges the existence of capitalism. Uh, because the the kind of political context um, for the series and the kind of love story that's sort of depicted is around the kind of economic kind of downturn um, in Ireland and how it sort of impacts on young people. Like there's sort of this sort of existential feeling um, that the characters sort of exhibit that, you know, there's no future, we're sh- struggling to find a job um, and sort of the economic sort of contradictions in um, of inequality and class tend to intersect with with the relationship um, with uh, the two um, protagonists. And one sort of strong example is the fact that um, the the only reason that the characters are romantically involved or romantically connected is the fact that the main protagonist, um, the male protagonist, his mother, uh, it works as a maid, <laughs> a cleaner for, uh, the mother of, uh, his love interests, which I think is sort of an interesting sort of, and the, the actual TV series is quite beautifully done in terms of its direction. Um, and it's, I think, quite fascinating. And of course, if you read the interviews of Sally Rodney, um, who's the author of the, of the book, she's quite outspoken about her left-wing politics. And in fact, she even acknowledges that she is a Marxist and Marxist sort of um, 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 theories underpin a lot of her work and all her stories tend to be kind of realist kind of te- texts that um, deal with romance and um, and drama. Yeah, so those are sort of two of the things, um uh, First Reformed, um, which is available on Netflix, and Normal People on Stand that I like to sort of recommend as part of our sort of special cultural dissent section of our programme. All right. Okay. Um. All right. Um. So you're listening to Green Left um Radio. Um. We might just play uh, a quick announcement. Um. And then we might move on to, I guess, a quick news kind of update. Uh. To for the final part of the program.
3: Exhibiting 300 artworks
1: by 286 Indigenous artists currently in or recently released from prison
3: in Victoria, Confined 11 serves as a strong visual metaphor for the over-representation of First Nations Australians in the criminal justice system. This year, The Torch presents the annual Confined exhibition online at thetorch.org.au. All artworks are for sale and 100% of the sale price goes directly to the artist help us paint a brighter future. Oh, Head to the torch.org.au from May the 14th to explore Confined 11. A 3CR supporter.
1: You could be anything of everything, but I'd most of all be a citizen.
0: All right, Um, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio um, and we were just um, discussing, um, we'll just help um, both me and Zane were just sort of mentioning uh, a number of um, sort of things that we recommended in terms of um, uh, television and films that you could watch on um, the streaming services currently available, especially in this sort of COVID-19 pandemic where everyone is sort of at their homes right now in Melbourne Um, and I guess the next, You're listening to Green Left Radio. It is time for the activist calendar, announcing upcoming events and how you can get involved. Due to the nature of the current lockdown restrictions, um, all of these events are online. So first up, on Saturday, August the 1st, there is going to be an online campaign launch, Stop Economic Wars, launching a campaign to stop and denouncing U.S. political, cultural and economic sanctions against people around the world, China, Iran, Iraq, Cuba, Yemen, Syria, Palestine and Venezuela. And that's happening on Saturday, August the 1st, um, 2 p.m. And you can search, if you search in Facebook, online campaign launch, Stop Economic Wars, you can find the registration link and find out how you can attend the event. There's also another online forum, Um, How Do We um, Reset? Ideas for a Just Future. The pandemic has disrupted business as usual, opening up the potential for different futures. Everything is being reset. How things unfold is up here to us. And this is an online event happening on Wednesday, August the 4th, 7.30pm. So just search online forum, How Do We Reset? Ideas for a Just Future. Then on Thursday, August the 6th, there will be an online rally, rally, Defend the Right to Protest, Free the Refugees, and that will be happening on Thursday, August the 6th, 8.30am. And if you go on the Refugee Action, um, Action Collective Melbourne website or the Facebook page, you can find the link to, Zoom, um, to register for the Zoom meeting. On Friday, August the seventh, there is a FreeCR fundraiser, World Sounds, um, happening on the seventh of August, eight pm. If you search for in um, on the check, check the FreeCR website for details. If you go and on Friday, August the seventh, as um, there'll be an online film screening, Social Justice Free Pack, and it's part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. So that's opening on Friday, August the 7th, um, and you just have to go to the Melbourne International Film Festival website. The next event will be an online forum housing as a human right during COVID-19, Saturday, August the 8th, 2pm, which is um, occurring via, via Zoom. A panel of speakers discussing why housing should be seen as a human right and how the COVID-19 pandemic is exacerbating existing inequalities under capitalism. This event is hosted by Sue Bolton-Morland Team and Social Science Melbourne. So um, um, check the Sue Bolton-Morland Team Facebook page for more details about this event. There'll be an online forum happening at that same time after Australia, Saturday, August the 8th, 2pm, in this daring collection of speculative fiction, 12 Indigenous writers and writers of colour offer up visions of Australia's possible futures after colonisation, after um, white supremacy, and after climate change. So just search online forum after Australia into Google or Facebook to get the details for that. Anyway... Hope you enjoy. We might move on to the next part of the program, where Zane is going to discuss what, where we're going to discuss what's happening in the United States.
2: Yes, so uh, it all started really with the huge wave of Black Lives Matters protests uh, across the USA. Those have been. I guess more ongoing in some areas than others, and in Portland, Oregon, a real kind of, uh, I guess left-wing, um, bastion of, of, of left-wing and progressive politics in the U.S., there's been ongoing, uh, protests there, sort of really stemming from the Black Lives Matter protests, um, protests against the police system and the state, and, the local authorities had the general approach of, like, in the USA, it's a bit different to here. Uh, local government handles the police force. Uh, they control the police force. So it would be the equivalent of, you know, Moreland Council runs the Moorland Police Force kind of thing, or, or maybe a Melbourne Metro Council. Anyway, the local police force in Portland, Oregon, they've probably got, like, a Center, you know, left liberal government, like, you know, not particularly progressive, but also not totally rabid scum like Trump. And so they're like, okay, people are protesting in the current context. We're just going to kind of let the protesters do their thing. Okay. There's been a few bit of graffiti and some broken windows, whatever. Uh, we're just going to kind of have a, a relatively speaking hands off approach. Um, and then Trump has kind of gone, no, no, uh, the local authorities are not handling this properly. I'm going to send in special federal paramilitary police um, to not only brutalize and tear gas people, but also to start snatching people off the street into unmarked vans and whisk them away to God knows where, no charges given, no sort of court, Uh, people are just being kidnapped off the street by kind of Gestapo units. And so point A, that's really scary and wrong and a horrendous precedent. And all of these anti-terror laws, which the left have been saying since September 11, since all these anti-terror laws were coming in, People were like, "Um, hello, civil liberties, it's kind of only a matter of time before this stuff doesn't get used against terrorists, it just gets used against peaceful community protesters. Lo and behold, that is exactly what's happening right now in the US and in other parts of the world. But there's been a backlash because heaps of people, these protests were probably on a bit of a downward trajectory, like... The thing was slowly dissipating, losing momentum. Trump has come in like a ton of bricks and sent in these Gestapo units, and that has radicalised lots of people who are watching from the sidelines to come in and defend the protesters and form a line. So uh, I was listening to a report on one night. There was a big protest of... Um, mums wearing yellow t-shirts who formed a huge human line between the cops and the protesters and then on another night there was dads (laughs) armed with leaf blowers to blow the tear gas away who again came in so yeah trump is trying to create a law and order sort of scandal for his election campaign and it's potentially not going the way that trump might have been envisaged and there's like blowback and it's kind of, it's re-radicalising people against Trump and against this super heavy handed and disturbing police response.
1: Yeah, that was a good summary, Zane. I, I guess Trump, I hate to dwell on Trump, but it's just so hard to not think about him and how the fact that he admires tyrants Uh, he wants to be one you know he he brags about his his good relationships with authoritarian leaders like um like vladimir putin he's defended horrible human rights abuses in history um you know he's he sees peaceful protesters as as rioters and terrorists um that's how dictators talk and yeah he's he's just repeatedly threatened to send more federal officers um into cities around the US um you know after spreading those lies about the protests in portland on sunday um he's just completely deluded i'm sure people have seen the videos online um like zane was saying these these peaceful protesters across the country um you know have been uh protesting against police brutality and systemic racism Uh, They're protesting for demanding change to an unjust, oppressive system, and uh, the Trump government is just continuing to deploy these like secret police. Um, Yeah, the one one protester was shot in the in the skull with a lethal round. Um, Yeah, his his skull got fractured, and yeah, they're just driving around in unmarked vehicles, harassing and terrorising people, protesters, tear-gassing them, uh, refusing to identify themselves, and unlawfully detaining protesters, not explaining to them why they are arresting them. They're just driving off with them. Um, yeah, so the, the Trump government is using these forces as his personal paramilitary force, um, just like a dictator.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think just one um, one of the... The uh, amazing things I think about what has been happening in Portland, Oregon, um, is it was quite clear that it was um, the protests around Black Lives Matter have sort of dissipated a bit in the United States. They haven't been as large. I mean, they're still going on. They're still consistent kind of organising on the ground, but they haven't necessarily... They've sort of reached a peak in a sort of earlier period in response to kind of George Floyd. But I think one interesting thing has been that, you know, early on, you could probably say that the protests in Portland, Oregon were kind of dying out. Uh, but then as soon as Trump sent in the federal kind of police uh, or federal guard um, and up the the state repression the protests have suddenly become larger because people started to rise up I guess in defiance of the of the state repression which I think is a very expiring thing um, and I think it it is definitely something that is shaping politics in a very serious way in the United States and I think there has also been speculation um, that Things are probably going to get worse in the United States, especially with the whole context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, there is this, the whole election kind of coming up. And it does seem to me, just based on polls and based on sort of Trump's approval ratings, it does appear to me, although I don't necessarily think he offers any alternative, it does seem likely to me that Joe Biden will likely win the presidential election come November. However, there is some inklings that Trump is going to um, do everything he can possibly can uh, in the most undermined, uh, undermining way possible to uh, delegitimize any sort of election and potentially try and keep on to his presidency. Um, so that is something to to be, to watch out for, and I think we would like to cover it as it updates. And there has also been speculation, um, with the sort of growing sort of far right sort of movement, especially the whole movement, uh, against, um, the whole COVID-19 pandemic, because there is a section of Trump's base, um, that doesn't actually believe that COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic is actually a thing. There's all these sort of elements that I think are shaping kind of American politics, and I think the whole Black Lives Matter movement, is think, is playing a part in actually putting forward, I guess, the, the positive sort of alternative um, to all the kind of messy things that are happening in um, politics in the United States. Okay, well, I I think we might tie this up, and we'll go play another quick announcement. Poverty,
1: homelessness, and the failure that is New Start. Green Left Weekly, covering the important issues. Visit greenleftweekly.org.au. All right, um, you're
0: listening to Green Left Radio, um, and we're getting on to the end, I guess, of our program.
1: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
0: If you'd like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206.
2: Arise, you workers from yes. the slumbers! Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and it last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise! Arise. Change forth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The cormies are back.
0: Reds underneath your beds in that crack. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners uh for tuning in this week. And Zane had a, mes- uh, a message for all of you. <laughs>
2: you make it sound really official. Just, um, I don't know, keep your masks on. Have a festive weekend. Keep fighting a good fight. Stay staunch.
1: Yeah, have fun on those Zoom. I I attended a Zoom birthday party. It was, it was awesome. So, so, um, yeah, have fun being socially distanced. I I say that sarcastically, but yeah, stay safe. Keep wearing your masks. Um, yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Well, um, yeah, um, stay tuned for next week and, um, there will be a podcast of this uploaded. So yeah, on the green left website um Green Left Radio um page on Free C R. Uh so Woo. see you next week.